What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Today on What Got You There Sean talks with one of the legends in the wine world Cyril Chapelet of Chapelet Winery Cyril is a leader, entrepreneur, trendsetter, and someone who anyone can learn a great deal from. On this episode, they discuss career changes, getting started in the wine business, and what it takes to stay ahead of the times in a constant changing industry. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Sarah, welcome to What Got You There. How are you today? I'm terrific today. Today's a, a incredible day, uh, and uh, in the Napa Valley, it's about uh, uh, 88 degrees right now, and it's going to get up to a little over 105, which is a little warmer than we'd like in the Napa Valley, actually. Yeah, you can never go wrong being out in Napa. So, so I'm curious, middle of the summer season here, what's a typical day look like for you right now? Well, in the vineyard, we have quite a bit of activity because the vines, um, the, the vines have really been cranking. All of the new growth is coming in. The, the, the berries are forming. And uh, the biggest thing that we have going on right now is two different things. They seem like that they, uh, that they might be kind of weird, but one of the things we do is we do some leaf thinning, which is making sure that the, uh, a certain amount of sunlight gets to the, where the grapes are. And then the other thing we're doing right now, and it's, it's actually pretty early for us, but we'll start doing some actual grape thinning. So we'll t- start taking out some of the grapes that we don't believe are going to really ripen fully. Um, and that gives uh, more energy to the vine to produce a more even production uh, across the board on the actual grapes that we're looking for. And it uh, allows us to have even a little higher quality grapes by, uh, by doing some, th- some thinning this time of the year. Now, I'm always fascinated by, by the process of different vineyards and, and what you guys like to do in terms of best practices. But I mean, you guys have been around since 67 uh, when your parents, Molly, and your late father, Don, started, started the vineyard. You want to give some listeners a little background on Chapelet? Sure. I was, uh, I was all of 10 years old when uh, my parents decided that they were going to move us from Southern California up to the Napa Valley. And in 1966, when my dad was actually looking at vineyards, um, there was really no competition for for buying remarkable vineyards because nobody knew what really was remarkable as we know today. Um, there were no cult wines. There were no 100-point wines or any of those things. None of those had come to existence. So my father really did it out of passion. And, um, and he was led to a mountain uh, that that is known as Pritchard Hill and that the Pritchard family had uh, founded in the uh, 1860s uh, when Charles Pritchard had moved out from New York. So we were the first person, people to actually uh, cultivate and start growing uh, grapes up there after the Pritchards. The Pritchards had vineyards in there in the uh, 
1980s, I believe, was was what we have some records of. And then by the 1920s, there were no vineyards there. So from 1920s to uh, 1960, late 60s, um, there were no vineyards on Pritchard Hill. And, and it was my father really following his passion. And uh, we were just the lucky um, drag along, so to speak, of having, uh, you know, six six children. Actually, my parents had our their sixth child, Dominic, the youngest of us, um, within the first year that they moved to the Napa Valley. Um, so they took five of us from Southern California up to um, the Napa Valley. And at that time, it was dirt road all the way up. And for about 25 years, there was nobody else on Pritchard Hill. One of the things that we learned early on was that the farming in the hillside was going to be much more tedious, um, a lot more expensive just uh, per ton, and and the tonnage was much less. Um, very, very rocky soils, very steep. But with those things being said, it produced some remarkable grapes. And um, we starting in the first few vintages, uh, the 1969 has been touted as maybe one of the best wines that was ever made in California. We hope that we're going to keep making better wines. We hope that in the future, we're able to make wines that are even more exciting. Um, the neat thing is that's a wine that's had 50 years to to show what that wine can do. And we've uh, we've tried it over the years and it wine still is one of the writers who was just writing about it said it's the wine that never seems to age. It seems to just hang in there. Lots of fruit, lots of vigor, lots of uh, flavor, um, and and so we know that the the grapes and the vineyards uh, from uh, Pritchard Hill can do some amazing things for longevity. And I think that you know we've harkened back to looking at what were we doing then, and how do we do that, and how do we keep a good feeling of being able to make those remarkable vintages um, as something that we're seeing in the future. And, and I think we've done a great job of it. We've continued to replant and, um, and do the things that are necessary. Originally, when we bought the property, the property was all dry farmed, meaning that there was no additional water. When we were kids, we literally would take a 300-gallon uh, tank behind a tractor, and that would have water in it, and we'd make little moats like you'd have on a rose bush. And we would we'd put three or four gallons in as kids. You know, it was three gallons or five gallons or four gallons. We just put some water in because we were told to do it. And that's how we watered the vineyards. Um, now we have a very sophisticated drip system. We have hydrometers all through the vineyard. Um, we're able to get ahead of the uh, high heat situations and where the ground might be drying out by certainly watching what the weather's doing, but then watching what the hydrometers are doing to make sure that such as, and a good example is right now with this heat that we're having the last few days, which has been over 100 degrees, the vines would normally want to kind of shut down with this high heat. And if we can give them some water a few days ahead, not when the heat is happening, but anticipate that temperature change and making sure there's some moisture in the soil, then the vines can kind of survive it and not wilt and not um, look really challenged. And so this is as weird as it is, this is technology. It sounds so simple, but and it really is simple, but uh, that's really helped us a lot. And so um, by having the ability to literally water every vine um, and at the right time, we were able to deal with a lot of the um, weather conditions that uh, that we would not have been able to with a dry farm vineyards. And, uh, and so water on our side is really a 
a, a blessing to be able to have any water. And luckily, my father put in some reservoirs within the first few years that we were there. And those reservoirs have really done well for us from the standpoint of it catches the winter water. And then we're able to use that throughout the out the season. Um, so the technology you mentioned, I mean, is that the biggest change you've seen in your 51 years in the business? I think technology has been a very, very big part of the changes. But I'd say the other part of it is, is the sharing of technology and sharing of best practices from around the world. For somebody to tell you that there's secrets of things that we do that that nobody else knows about and does um, would be a fallacy. I mean, it's it's not true. Um, is there something that somebody in Burgundy is doing or Bordeaux are doing that, that we don't know about? Possibly, but not for very long. We have five or six interns every single year from all over the world. They are going to go intern someplace else. They're going to go back to their wineries. If they find something that's interesting that, that we're doing, you know darn well that they're going to start trying to do the same things or similar things. Um, and that just has, has to do with communication is what it is. We have the internet. You know, Information is shared so fast and so quickly that the secrets from all over the world that used to be secrets in, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, um, information gets out there. So best practices really help an awful lot. And I think we, we are able to pick up things that people in other um, uh, Mediterranean climates have figured out years ago. And, uh, and I think that the sharing of information and technology together is what has made for the, probably the largest stride. And, and I'd say for my team, it's not accepting anything besides shooting for excellence and trying at the very best to look for perfection if we can. And I'm not sure we know what perfection is. All we know is if we try to keep doing better, we'll get closer to it. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's something that, that I feel, feel we're fortunate. We have an amazingly beautiful property, but outside of that, it produces remarkable fruit. And, uh, and that's just because of a dedicated team of vineyard specialists, um, uh, and a vineyard manager has been with us for uh, 33 years. Uh, and all these guys are dedicated every day to trying to figure out what we can do to make those vineyards even better. And the same exact thing happens in the winery. Our winery team is doing the same thing. And I kind of jokingly was talking to a group and I said, you know, it's the job of the winemakers not to screw up what the vineyard has given them. And if the vineyard gives them really good fruit, how do you make sure that they take great advantage of making that fruit into the best that it could be? And, and I say that kind of jokingly because they're such professionals. They're not screwing up anything, but, but you know, it's, it's kind of like, um, making dough. If you, uh, for bread and there's an example that I was using that if you need it too long and if you pound it too much, and if you try too hard, the dough becomes very, very, very challenged. And you don't have that light, beautiful bread that you would have for just doing it the right amount of time. So sometimes more is not better. Um, sometimes more is is too much. And, and how do you know when it's a good time just to say, Hey, let this fruit develop the way that it is, let this wine develop the way that it is. And sometimes less is more in these situations. So, I mean, you guys are always at the the forefront of, of what you're implementing there. Is there anything you've seen in the past couple of years that you really think is kind of changing the wine industry and you guys have, have gone all in on and adapted? Well, I wouldn't say the last couple of years, I would say it was, it's a longer term than, than that. It's probably the last 10 years, if you allow me to, to broaden this a little bit on the, you know, one of the things is we farm organically and, um, and it's not just a statement of, of trying to do something in order to get into 
Whole Foods or something like that. It's it's the truth of the matter, and and we believe that it sets the next generation up even better to have have even better uh, soil and soil conditions. And I think that we've learned a lot from doing that. It means it's a lot more hand labor involved, but um, the organic farming I think is is a smart thing to do and is, is a logical way to go. We've always been pesticide free, so that's been for long term. We've been sustainable for the last uh, 40 years that we've been, and so we've been doing the right things, but now we're just taking it one step further. And that, I think that step is, is a thoughtful approach to how do we deal with issues and challenges out in the vineyards. Um, there's no one or two remarkable things. I'd say one of the things that, that is an evolution that is, that sets some of us apart is the ability to experiment and having enough space and enough vineyards to experiment and try different clones, different rootstocks in different areas. Um, you know, we farm about 120 acres of vineyard on Pritchard Hill that are our vineyards. And, and in that, there are numerous different blocks of Cabernet, numerous different blocks of Merlot, um, some Petit Verdot, numerous, you know, and, and each of them are growing in a certain area with a certain clone with a certain rootstock because we've tried it over the years and we've found out that this rootstock works really well in this area, that clone works really well in that area, and we put those together. And and that's just experimenting. And we might um, put four or five rows of one clone right next to another. Uh, and and, and the, the clone is basically just the, the um, it's like if you, you have a rose bush, it's a rose bush. It's the difference between having a pink rose bush or a uh, or a red or rose bush. There's still still roses, and they regard as still cabernet, but one has slightly different flavor than the other. Um, and, uh, and and just experimenting. And then the other part of it is keeping all that separate when it goes in the winery, so you can define exactly and you can see exactly what came out of those vineyards. So. Smaller batches is something that has become much more pre- prevalent in the last 15 to 20 years, and um, and keeping everything separate and blending at the very kind of the, the very last minute, so that you have lots of different choices as to what those blends are going to be, and you can really see what has developed. When you're looking at your calendar, what's the most exciting time of year for you over there? Well, I I definitely say harvest, and I would recommend to any of the listeners who um, are, are really wine fanatics, um, uh, if you have a chance, and with a lot of pre-planning, um, both uh, from the hotel and restaurant side, but also from the vineyard side, uh, harvest harvest is really exciting. It's the one time of the year that you really everything is really happening. Um, you know, you've got fermentations going, you've got grapes being picked. Um, you, there's just a lot of activity that happens there. And so I'd say that it's the... It's probably the most dynamic time of the year. It's also a busy time, and that's why I was saying that people need to really plan when they're coming out during that time to uh, talk to the wineries that you want to visit, make sure that they're available, understand that you might be holding on to a shovel uh, rather than your glass of wine <laughs> for a few minutes because because they need help and they're and and they've got jobs to do and they've got especially for the smaller wineries like ourselves um, every every man's um, on full time and you know, and, um, and, and it's, things can happen, but that makes it dynamic. That makes it different. That makes it, you get to really see kind of what's happening. So I would say that would be the time. Uh, 
On the other side of the coin, if you want to have a little more leisurely time and just enjoy uh, the relationships and the friendships and, and getting to know some of the vintners a little better, um, I would come in January, February, or March uh, while schools are still in process and um, while there's not quite as much activity happening in, in the valley, but um, the vines are dormant, so you don't see that much during that time. But the wineries can certainly spend the time, and you could probably actually get into a restaurant uh, during that time. And so, so um, there's no bad time. It's pretty warm right now, but it's interesting. Our tasting room is completely full. We have we're booked um, later and earlier than we'd ever expected, and and people are are wanting to come visit. And you know, for the first 25 years, we didn't have any guests who would come all the way out to Pritchard Hill to visit us. And, uh, you know, we've always welcomed people to be there, but it's too far. It's too, it's too easy to go to one of the three or 400 other wineries in the Valley that are five minutes off the highway or three minutes off the highway. And we're, you know, and we're 11 or 12 minutes off the highway. And there are people who could make that distinction and, and not come visit us. But now I'd say that in the last three, four or five years, we've seen a real influx of people from all over the world who are finding us and really want to come visit us. And I hope that our experience is so terrific that they want to come back where they tell their friends um, because it means a tremendous amount to us that somebody is willing to come visit us and, and try our wines right there where we can be uh, on it and, and talking to them and, and showing them really what, what does develop and what is happening. So um, that's a long way around of answering what's the best time of the year. I'm sorry for giving you such a long, long answer, but I, the the best time of the year is the time that you can make it and have uh, and can can come enjoy the valley. I think. No, I, I brought you on to have in depth conversation with responses like that. So this is absolutely fascinating for me. You mentioned your team and, and the demand for perfection. And what do you think you guys do, you yourself especially, really well to to push your team to strive for that excellence, strive for that perfection? Um, I I I will jokingly say this, but. But I kind of I kind of do mean it also. Get the hell out of their way. Hmm. Help them to get them where they want to go. Give them the tools to do it, and and give them the, you know, from my standpoint of running my family's business, um, it's these guys are all professionals um, and gals. Um, they are they are remarkable. They're the best of the best. Um, when they want to do something, let's let's talk about it. Let's talk about the logic of it. If it needs some financing, if we need some other equipment, if it needs um, an expert to come in and help give us some cult consulting, um, make the decision as quickly as possible and, and stick with it and then support these guys to, to go in that direction and, and try it. Um, I, as I said, exper experimentation, I think it's really important. And our dedication to experimenting is, is very important. And, um, and, you know, my father used to tell us uh, uh, all the time, he said, you know, the best is yet to come. I'm, I'm, I can just feel it with everything that you guys are doing that you're going to make even more spectacular wines than we've made in the past. Um, you know, I kind of feel that in my gut. I understand that, and I, and I get that. And I think that our winemaking team, our vineyard our management team, they get it also, and they're completely dedicated to uh, trying to, you know, take some chances and see what we can do to make something even better and, and more unique. Um, and at the same time, we have to stick to our guns because the client 
who is buying Chapelet. It needs to taste like Chapelet. It needs to taste like the wines that we make from Pritchard Hills. So we don't want to get out there so far that we're not making and sticking to our guns and sticking to the quality and, and the flavor profiles that we're doing. But if we can make those flavor profiles just 1% better or 2% better, there's that just reminds me, there's a, there's a piece of equipment that we did buy a few years ago, and I should have mentioned this when you asked what one thing does make a difference. There's a lot of things that make a 1% or 2% difference. There's nothing that I know of that makes a 20 or 30% difference in the quality of our wines. And there's one piece of equipment that uh, we tried, and we tried a French version of it first, and it's, it's a optical sorter. So basically, it's a it's a a very fancy machine that takes pictures evaluates the pictures through a computer and is taking literally hundreds of pictures as the grape is falling in about a six inch space. And then two inches below that six inch space, it has little tiny air jets. And through this computer analysis, that's evaluating the color, the size, the texture of anything that's dropping in that area it will open a little micro jet of air and blast that out of the pathway of the normal gravity that would take it into the tanks to be fermented. Um, that simple little system that is not so simple um, doesn't get tired. It's not, and we used to do this all by hand. Um, I believe it makes a one and a half, maybe 2% difference in the quality. And I think that's what we have to strive for is how can we keep finding those one and a half or 2% differences that might make it better. And so an optical sorter is definitely one of those technical um, pieces of equipment or pieces of equipment that we have. And uh, and we have great fun showing it off. We we tried a French one for years, and now we have one made from out of Walla Walla, Washington. And these guys out of Washington uh, had been using this technology for sorting um, all kinds of items, but specifically either pills for the pharmaceutical industry or they were... Um, they were um, sorting potatoes, and they felt that if they could sort potatoes on one end, those great big thing, lumpy things, and little tiny pills, where they could figure out how to do grapes. So they ran, they wrote some new programs, wrote some new things, changed the equipment a little bit, and sure enough, they've got a great piece of equipment, and uh, and it's been flawless for the last three years. We've been just delighted by it. So. Um, that's one of those long explanations again. Sorry. No, I mean, that doesn't definitely doesn't sound like a, a cheap piece of technology you guys have implemented there, is it? No, it's pretty expensive. <laughs> I, I think I could be driving a Ferrari if I was not willing to have that. Um, but uh, I drive a pickup truck and that's fine by me. I'd much rather have that piece of equipment there making our wines just a little bit better and giving one more tool. And that gets back to the personal side of things, right? That you asked me about how do we, how do I coach our people to to look to do better when our guys come to us with a piece of equipment that's very, very expensive and really challenging, and I kind of have to go to the bank to figure out how am I going to make get the money to be able to do those things. Um, that's my job to figure that out, and and I believe that really inspires them to know that they've got that kind of support behind them that we can that we can take those leaps and and you know it, it's sad if those leaps don't work for us, but. But normally they do, and this one certainly has panned out with optical sorters. And there's there's other technologies and other equipment that are coming about all the time that that will help us uh, a little by little by little. And uh, and those are the those are the things we need to be able to support our teams by dealing with. 
I mean, you mentioned getting out of your team's way and really letting them do what they do best. And uh, that's a reoccurring theme we've had with with some of the, the business leaders we've had on this podcast. And I know a few times you've mentioned your, your 69 Cabernet. And I'm first curious, when's the last time you opened a bottle of that? Well, we had a... Um See, once again, you asked me a question that becomes a longer answer. But this is my favorite we, part of this. <laughs> okay, so we had a uh, opportunity due to the wine auction uh, from last year when the Napa wine auction. Um, we it was our fiftieth anniversary, and we actually put in an auction item that allowed would allow ten people to try fifty vintages of Chapelet. So we tried everything from nineteen sixty eight through. 2017 out of barrel and we had a formal tasting we had uh, only one press person was there uh, Lisa Prady Brown uh, from um, uh, from Robert Parker's uh, association and she was the only press person there but it was really for this group of guests who paid it made a very very large donation to the Napa wine auction for it to go to Healthcare in the Napa Valley, um, and um, we did this tasting. So that was in uh, the first of May that we did that. So I got to try the '69. The interesting thing that we were able to do was we had in the winery, and my dad had been so rigorous about protecting these wines that we had every single vintage that had never left the winery and had been in pristine temperature storage. Um, since the time that that wine was actually bottled. And we were able to do the whole tasting in Magnums. And I think that, you know, as, as we all know, those those wines that are aging in Magnums probably have the ability to age a little longer, a little more gracefully for the long term um, in Magnums than, uh, than you might in a 750. And so uh, if there was ever a chance to kind of do this right, this was, this was the opportunity. So we did try the 69 there, and uh, Lisa gave that 100 points, and she went on and on glowingly about the wine. I don't think she'd ever tried the wine before. I've tried it several times over the years. Um, and, you know, for a vintage that we only made 800 cases of, to see that there's any of that wine left any place is amazing. And, uh, and and once in a while, it comes up in an auction or something, and uh, all I can say that. Um, if you get it for under three thousand dollars a bottle, um, and that's for seven fifty, then you're you're ahead of the game because the, the people who know about this wine have been paying those kind of prices for it. Now it's tough for me because when I see them there, I'm going, gosh, I really like to get one more of those, but how you know that's just too expensive. But the fact of the matter is, um, it is so highly touted and so many people love it that they're paying that kind of price for it. So. Um, we did try it. It was once again uh, stunning how that wine still had so much youth to it and so much color, and it didn't have some of the tawniness and the browniness that was started to happen with oxidation. It was still very, very tight, um, and, and and still, um, it, it's it's never been a harsh wine. That wine was always uh, kind of an, a lovely wine uh, to taste, and so. Um, that wine stood out the 1971 and 72 really stood out um also um and then i'd say there was what was interesting out of all 50 wines that we tried there were no wines that had gone there were some wines that were that had shown uh 
more uh, more aged than others, but none of the wines were completely cooked or you'd say, hey, I don't want to drink this. Um, uh, and every wine was interesting throughout the whole tasting. Um, the wines that really showed that the most remarkable were the wines out of this, the, you know, the late 60s and the 70s because they were so old and they were showing so beautifully. Uh, the wines in the 80s, we had some challenging vintages. Uh, there we had some very, very, very wet years, and um, they were tough winemaking vintages. Uh, so showed well the wines in the 90s, spectacularly. The wines in the early 2000s, um, still very, very youthful, and no issues with that. And then, of course, the current wines, um, and the wines in the uh, 2010s um, are showing uh, uh, extremely youthful. And and uh, and one thing is we learned from doing these tastings is that a wine doesn't have to be harsh and tannic and out of balance early on in order to be able to stand the test of time. And that these wines that are really well balanced uh, can be uh, uh, can be quite uh, spectacular. Um, all the way through and continue to, to do that. And so um, so it was a great eye-opener for all of us at the table. And the 10 men who, who bought it, I think that if they had the opportunity to do the same thing again, they would, they would do it again. Uh, I'm not sure how many of those that I really can do. I, I'd like to have it set up so that my uh, niece and nephews or brothers, sisters who want to do one of those in, uh, at, uh, at 60 years and 70 years, can do that. So I'm trying to protect enough of those wines so they can do the same thing and show 70 vintages or 60 vintages um, at some point and see what that, see where those go. So um, it's being arduous and not allowing at any price for some of those wines to go. Yeah. I mean, that just sounds like an absolute incredible tasting and an incredible evening. I'm, I'm curious though, you have 50 years of memories, emotions, family involvement in that. What are the emotions like as you're tasting these wines? Well, one of the things that the men who did this tasting asked me to do was to have my mom there, have any brothers and sisters who would who wanted to be um, be there, and they wanted to hear the stories. We also had all of the winemakers who had made those wines there for the tasting. So we got to listen to them and hear the stories of things that we may or may not have been doing at during those times um, uh, to to talk about. And so I think that that added a very personal side of what that was. And uh, my mom would remember and recall some of the, you know, trying times from the first few years as, as we, um, as we were just trying to figure out, you know, what farming was all about. And, uh, and my dad literally hung up his coat and tie for, uh, for a pair of, in, in the, you know, you asked what the emotional level was, I, and I'm saying this in a very joking, lovingly way, but if you can believe it, he bought a brand new Ford blue tractor, and with his blue tractor, he put on a pair of white pants and a blue work shirt, um, and that's what he wore every day. And And his pants were so dirty at the end of every day, and I'm just thinking, why wouldn't he have a pair of blue jeans or something that would be, uh, you know, a little more... Uh, able to deal with the, with the all the dirt that we have and and dust but um so those are humorous moments um we we didn't know what we were getting into or my dad didn't he just had a, a complete faith that he could make it work he was a, 
serial entrepreneur who wanted to make a business out of it. It wasn't a hobby. It was, you know, he was fully invested. Everything that he had, he put into it. And now it's my job to to carry that on. And luckily, I have a terrific board of adv- advisors and also board of directors who are, um, I, I believe, have the same objective. And they they push me pretty hard to to make sure we're setting this up for the next generations uh, to do the same thing. I mean, as CEO, is that your key goal right now, letting this continue for some generations? It certainly is. There's no question about it. That the, uh, the uh, you know, my, my father's dream was that he'd have a business that would go on for multiple generations, and we've done successfully moved it to our generation. And now it's our job to be good caretakers to get to the next generation, and hopefully we can train them and educate them and have them have the same passion to do the same thing as the next generations. I, I'd say if for any of the listeners who are out there, if you want to see what our model would be, um, look up the Frescobaldi's or the Antonori's. Uh, they've been doing it for um, the Frescobaldi's for 700 years, 32 generations. And the Antonori's have been doing the wine business for 600 years and 26 generations. So, um, that would be the goal. Now, now it'll be very impressive because it gets tougher and tougher as generations go on. And with all of our taxes and all of our different laws and regulations that we have here to to do that, it's not it's not as protected to have family businesses as it is in, in Europe. And it's not as, as, as normal to have long-term family businesses. But um, that's certainly what the objective is. And um, and that's, that's as, as I said, as a caretaker for this business, that's certainly what my Uh, my plan is and what I'm trying to do on a daily basis. I mean, many of the people who were enjoying your wines in in the late 60s and the 70s, they might not even be around today. So how are you guys then (laughs) staying relevant uh, with with this younger generation and really introducing them to the Chapelet brand? You hit the nail on the head. If there's one thing that's a challenge for me is that if, if we don't get the kids and the grandkids of the people who fell in love with our wines in the 60s and the 70s, to start enjoying our wines, we're not going to have a business. And I, you know, I'm not that great on social media, so I don't have, uh, I haven't figured out how to make social media drive our business to, to get, uh, because I think that wine is such a personal thing. It's a taste thing. It's not, um, it's, it's, you know, and there's so many different options out there. So um, how, that's a great question is, is how do we get more of the young you know, people who really understand and really love wines, but the younger folks in their twenties and thirties to, to find Chapelet because we're, uh, you know, I I think we're staying relevant. I think we're doing a great job from a quality standpoint, but I don't know how we're necessarily attracting them. I can tell you that we're getting more of those people who are coming to the winery and visiting us. But, um, when you, when they look at a wine list, um, the, the people who have been around for a long time know that Chapelet is something that, oh, Chapelet's on the list, I'll get that. And they know it's safe. They know it's a wine that, that over-delivers. But how do I get that next generation and those the millennials and the people out there who are certainly have the ability to try and drink anything they'd like uh, to understand how, how special our wines are and, and what kind of dedication we have to it, and therefore a wine that they might want to um, enjoy with dinner or have at a restaurant or wherever they are. So um, I'm all ears. And if any of you listeners have any good ideas for me, uh, call me at the winery <laughs> and, and help me out here because 
because you know it, it's I don't know maybe there's magic to doing it. Um, I think hard work and and overproducing from a quality standpoint are the first steps that we can do, and hopefully the experiences that we give people when they come uh, visit at the wineries at a level where uh, where they're saying, hey, this is pretty cool, um, and and they fall in love with it from that level. And we have one of the most beautiful sites in the Napa Valley, but if in my wildest dreams, I would need to have 20 times our guest count, which we could never kind of handle to cover all of our wines and, and to get all of our sales through visiting the winery. So a lot of this has to happen out in the marketplace and has to happen at the restaurants, the retailers, and the people who are promoting our wines. And then also kind of a little bit of a groundswell of people telling their friends, hey, Chapelet is really spectacular. And the wines from Chapelet are wines you need to have in your cellar or on your table. So um, I, I don't have the magic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when, when you're looking to grow that brand, are you more looking geographically? Are you looking at certain age demographics? I mean, what are you as the CEO looking to grow next? I, we, we, sell, we sell some of our, of our wine inter, internationally, about 5%. Um, I think that what we need to look at is the younger wine drinker um, who are not just following the fads and who are, really interested in great Cabernet. Um, uh, and we make a number of other wines too. We have, we have, uh, uh, a number of wines we make for our club wines. We do them all back. We do a Merlot. Um, we make a lot of other flavors of wine, uh, that, uh, are, are what we, what we do. We do a number of different Cabernets. Um, so it's really trying to find the right wine for the customer. Um, we don't, try to make wines for a certain group, a certain flavor profile. We try to make the best possible wines we can, and then hopefully find the right customers who enjoy that wine. So um, it's a bit of experimentation for our, our clients and our guests to try the wines that they, that they like the most from us. And um, the, the biggest, most important tool that we've had is we built a club years ago and our club tends to be our Pied Pipers. So the people who are really interested in Chapelet and knowing everything that Chapelet does are, are our club members. And, uh, and that's probably the strongest growth that we have because, because they tend to be very viral with each other. They talk to each other. They, they talk to other people, their friends about wines. Um, and there's a tight connection between the winery uh, and our staff and the club members. So that's probably the biggest tool um, is to get more club members and more younger club members is probably the biggest one thing that I would say uh, would be a driving thing and, and an objective for me to do over the years. Um, as great as it is, we love it when people have are tied with a restaurant or a retailer and um, buy from a particular uh, retailer, um, wherever that is. And if they're comfortable with buying from that, for that person, that's, that's incredible. That's terrific. But we believe that, if we can have a direct relationship with a customer that we can at least we can know what their needs are, we can take care of them and we can also uh, listen to what they're saying and what, what we're dealing with. And, and, and so that direct relationship is marvelous. And I think the best thing we can possibly do. Yeah. I mean, not knowing all the ins and outs of your business, but it sounds like club members under 40 with the most social influences is who you guys should really be targeting and, and finding out ways that you can really tap into their networks that'll really help sustain you guys for the future. I mean, I've got a few more, just a couple more fun questions. Uh, I, I'm really interested in some of these. So what's the most memorable bottle you've ever opened? A uh, memorable bottle of, of our wine or memorable bottle of somebody else's? Somebody else's. 
Um, well, I've been fortunate to um, to enjoy some really beautiful bottles of, uh, and I, I and I, even though we produce Cabernet, I I love some of the Pinot Noirs, and I'd have to say that um, that there is some of the Domaine Romani Conte, um, which is probably the finest Burgundy producer in the world, um, and uh, I've had a Grand Estrezo of theirs that was just remarkable. Um, and uh, wine that's just uh, spectacular, and um, and I think that um, those those wines are a great example of kind of the best of the best from a very small vineyard. The Domaine Romani Conte from uh, the Romani Conte Vineyard um, is spectacular. I think that those have been very interesting for me to try the different vin- some different vintages of those. They're getting so expensive that um, that it, it's. You know, you got to go to the right people, have the right friends to open those bottles with, um, and, and to try them. But but they are spectacular, um, and so that's probably what some, probably the most kind of mind bending of wines that I've uh, been able to try um, o- over the years. Um, I I like wines from all all different regions. I you know I I love the some of the uh, uh, Sauvignon Blancs coming out of New Zealand. Um, so we drink a lot of other wines besides our own own wines. Uh, I think we're starting to see some really beautiful uh, Pinot Noirs coming out of uh, the Russian River Valleys, out of the Sonoma area, that are intriguing to me also. And I, 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 I think it's wine lovers tend to experiment and try different wines, and I, th- I think that that's one of the beauties of it. Um, so, um, so that, anyway, that's. That's an example of uh, some of the wines. We try a lot of wines. <laughs> there's there's nothing wrong with trying a few wines. So if there's someone in the world you've never met and you're going to open up a bottle with them, who's that person going to be and what are you guys going to open up? If there's someone, somebody in the world that I've never met. Yeah, but you'd love to I wanted- enjoy a bottle of wine with them. Who's it going to be and what are you guys going to open? Oh, gosh, that's a, that's a tough question. That's Now you got me really thinking about that. Um, so for no, there's okay. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I've heard you mention someone in the past, the Wilbur Smith, the great African writer, um, who I've heard you mention would be just a fascinating person to sit down with. So I'm looking for something like that. I just don't want a family member response. I want to know someone that might be outside the wine industry that you're really interested in and would love just talking for a few hours with. Well, you're, that, that's interesting. You brought, brought up Wilbur Smith because I've read most all of his books and um, and. The, besides having a, a wonderful trip to Africa that we took uh, a few years ago, um, uh, I know Africa through his eyes and through his writings, and and I'd say that um, that, that he would be a fascinating person to to, to meet with and to to, to talk with, and um, I think I would open uh, I would open some of our most interesting wines. I would try to. And I'm not sure that open at 69 or something like that. I would try to open a wine that I thought was really showing kind of who we are currently and what we're doing. Um, so I might open a bottle of the, uh, you know, 2014 or something like that, uh, um, Pritchard Hill Cabernet uh, to to try with them and and have a, a, a lovely dinner, which um, I wouldn't mind preparing myself because I love to cook. Uh, and and have uh, a long in depth depth evening, and maybe even finish off with a 
a little bit of some of the Jefferson Reserve uh, bourbon with that is aged in our barrels. Uh, that has been a really fun project that we've been doing the last few years with with Trey Zoller um, out of Jefferson Reserve out of Kentucky. Um, and so I think I'd want to have him see a few different things because I would imagine that um, that he's probably a bourbon drinker uh, or, or 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 a scotch drinker. Um, uh, and so uh, I'd want to have him taste something that we're doing in that regard too. That's kind of fun. So um, Wilbur's would be a great one to uh, to try that to try it with. But you know, there's there's leaders of state at different levels. I would never imagine uh, meet, meeting, but uh, but I'd say if it was somebody at that kind of a level, uh, I would do something, uh, try a, a bottle, and and maybe even have a a beautiful champagne from from one of the great champagne houses to start off with just to uh, to celebrate being able to talk with this person who's so special. I mean, amazing answer. It's just such a great way to, to end this conversation. But uh, Cyril Chapelet, where can the listeners stay connected with you if they want to come uh, out there to visit you guys? Where should they go? Well, um, they can certainly go to our website. It's uh, chapelet.com. Make it really easy for everybody. Um, that's probably the easiest way to get at, get the most information directly. Um, and if they want to just call the winery directly, I can just give you a direct number for the winery and our concierge staff should be able to handle that. If they want to talk to me personally, all they have to do is ask them for me and, uh, they'll get hold of me also. So, um, the telephone number there is 707-286-4219. Um, and it's, uh, chapelet.com to find our website and uh, we'd be happy to uh, to receive any people who are listening uh, to this podcast and uh, truly if anybody has any ideas on things that we could and should do to uh, develop a stronger relationship with the younger crowd of folks um, coming forward who will uh, help my next generation to keep driving this business in the way that we have I am all ears and would love to hear from them. So uh, you can always get hold of me through the winery. Awesome. Well, we'll have all that linked up in the show notes and I'll also definitely follow up, uh, send some notes, definitely being in that that age demographic you guys are looking for. But this has been a fascinating conversation. I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you very much. And we're, we are here and we're going to just keep on going. So uh, thank, thanks very much for your time. And uh, um, and um, we're we're delighted and we'll look forward to having a glass of wine with you next time we see you. Great. Thanks so much. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time.
If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.